Well, well, Bjorn. Well, Bjorn. What's his name? Bjorn. As they say. Keep it simple. Well, Bjorn. As they as they say. You know, one of the ones that always makes me laugh. As they say. It would probably be hike your own hike. It's true though. <laughs> well, Bjorn. As they say. Can I just means willy nilly. As they say. Bjorn. Can you, John Hancock, this? As they say. Don't get all up in your wool. I'm right there with you, Bjorn. Ohne Moos nix los. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the English word. I can't think of it. <laughs> As they say. Oh, okay. It's Gummia. Oh, Bjorn. Experienced is what you get. Mm. As they say. They. Mm. As they say. Well, Bjorn. Thank you for being here. You're listening to the As I Say podcast. Welcome to the As They Say podcast. My name is Bjorn. I'm host of this podcast. And this is the holiday highlight, a compilation of all the different guests I had on this year. I'm super grateful for every single one. I'm grateful for you tuning in and listening to this to this small podcast. Uh, it's a uh, been super fun for me and it was a great challenge for me throughout this year it was stressful and scary and uh just there was so much tremendous growth i never thought i got to talk to so many cool people um and spend some time with them mostly virtually over uh, zoom but i learned a lot and um i think it's just been very valuable for me and i hope you if you listen to some of the past episodes that you got some value out of them as well um and originally this just started as a challenge for me to stay busy during lockdown in april uh, i started with my brother to maybe find a way because i knew david is going to germany so it's like i want to find something where we can stay in touch longer hopefully we will do more catch-up conversations next year yeah this whole thing turned to interviewing people and uh, i love it and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Stay tuned. I appreciate you. If you enjoy this format, this podcast, support always support is always welcomed. Uh, so subscribe, you know, or tell your friends. Or if you want to give me feedback, you can give get in touch with me at the as I say pod at Instagram. Email me over as I say pod at gmail.com. Without further ado, episode one with Keller Forns. Uh, well, we had a pretty small high school. You know, I say that when I'm say I went to a small school and then I talked to somebody else and they had like 10 kids in their class, but um, there was 300 kids in my grade and I don't know. I, I kind of dipped my toes into like a few different things. I was on the football team and pretty good at that, but I also was in a band. Um, and so like, I was the only, there was two of us that were in the band that were on the football team. And then there was three of them that were not on the football team. And so when I would hang out with those guys, you know, I would hang out with a lot of, they were actually in the school band and they were doing like music stuff outside of that. Um, so I had like a group of friends there on the band side. I had my football friends. I still had some of my skater friends that I would still skate with every now and then in the off season. Right. And, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd say majority for sure was the football guys. Okay. Um, 
but it wasn't it wasn't so clicky that you see in some of these shows and stuff to where it was like you can't branch out of your click or you're dead or whatever it wasn't yeah. it wasn't that extreme okay like, look at these freaking nerds over there it wasn't really yeah, yeah it wasn't really like that uh, do you do you see and you're in seventh grade yeah do you see any clicks right now, or any groups yeah which ones do you do you notice the most popular kids the popular but the, the idiots. I, I'm, there's the idiots the idiots <laughs> <laughs> which one are you in you got you got a, like soccer click and there aren't that many people that play soccer yeah team. does your school have a team no we have a football, no, team. football team and we have a golf team but we don't have a soccer team whoa that's weird yeah and we have soccer goals but no. yeah what about so when you get to high school is it, is it just a junior high school you're at right now i'm at middle middle school right now. middle school yeah so is it just like seventh and eighth grade in one building Six, seven, oh, okay, cool. So that I mean, once you get to high school, they'll probably have a soccer team, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember that being weird too. My middle school didn't have a soccer team, but our high school did. Probably not as many kids would have felt like they were forced to join the football team if we had a soccer team, but right. Uh, yeah. Hey, just at least you're like practicing and stuff before when all the other kids aren't. Yeah. yeah, he David plays um like clubs and like um right now it sucks with the with the virus like yeah summer camps hard to find summer camps but yeah he wants he says he wants to go professional and that's all he talks about so I um uh, you know if this podcasting doesn't work out, I'll be your agent yep. there you go <laughs> hey you got to go for it man I mean if that's if that's what you want to go for do it yeah i'm 28 and i'm still going for my thing and i'm not gonna stop anytime soon so right all right let's let's get into that so with um with acting and like you got from that sport you still definitely kept the sport part up but you learn when did you learn to, that you have, that you have a creative side or that you kind of like is it, that's what i want to do i want to do acting i want to do movie or directing yeah in college or in high school it started in high school um so there was this uh organization that was like a christian youth ministry organization called young life um in my town it's like all across the united states it's a it's a cool organization um and you know kids would go to that on like wednesday nights and it was a cool place to you know, go hang out with chicks and stuff like that. And uh, they, they would have uh, these, like, the counselors, like, the leaders would put on, like, shows right. every now and then. And I, I was like, I, I just got, I think I had gotten asked to come up with a show because they knew I wasn't shy by any means. And, um, and so uh, my friends and I started doing, like, skits at that. Well, then my older brother was dating the head cheerleader at the time. I was in 10th grade or yeah, yeah, I was in 10th grade and he was a senior in 12th grade and the head cheerleader is in charge of the pep rallies that we would do every Friday morning in front of the whole school before on game days for uh, football right. game days. And uh, our pep rallies were terrible. They were awful. And like kids would 
try their best to skip them. I mean, they weren't mandatory. So kids, a lot of kids would just prefer to just sit in the cafeteria and do nothing than go like to like a free pep rally. And uh, they were, they were just awful. And I remember my brother's girlfriend, her name was Courtney. She, she was like, Hey Keller, don't you do some like stupid little skit things with your friends at the young life? And I was like, well, if you're about to ask me a favor, maybe don't start with calling them stupid, but yes. And they were so stupid. She was right. (laughs) Uh, But she was like, she's like, do you want to try one at the pep rally and maybe like try and get some people to laugh so they're not terrible. Right. So my friend and I would do like Hans and Franz, which is a a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah. That sounds hilarious Hans yeah. is a German name I just oh, yeah. a German guy in France yeah so it's like you can you can look this up it's good uh American pop culture reference uh they did it on Saturday Night Live and so we would put on like sweatsuits like you know hoodies and we would stuff them to make ourselves look jacked and we would do like a terrible German accent like I'm Hans and I'm Franz and we're here to pump you up <laughs> And so we were there to like pump the fucking crowd up. Oh, sorry. And uh, and we did it one time. Like, I was like, this is gonna be so stupid. It's, but you know, who cares? I got one of my friends who seemingly was not nervous. He, he's like a guy that I would do all these skits with. But right before we did it, you know, we've been doing it at Young Life, which was a crowd of like thirty people, max. And then we were getting ready to do it in front of the whole school of like over a thousand people yeah and uh and he was like crapping himself he was like he was like dude i don't i don't think i can i don't think i can do this and and he was the starting running back on the football team like (laughs) like there's way more pressure on him in a football game than like yeah dancing some stupid skit and he's like i don't think i can do this i was like you can't back out we're like two seconds away from she's about to like introduce us and he's like dude i don't know and then I just go, all right, let's go. And <laughs> pushed him out there. And we did it. And that was at like the second pep rally of my sophomore year. And uh, and we got a huge reaction. People loved it. And people told us that that was like their favorite part of the pep rally. And so we ended up doing a skit at every pep rally for the next three years. That is <laughs> and so- I, would, I would write and kind of direct yeah. Um, oh, okay. Each, each skit, and then I started using different different friends of mine. Some from the football team, and some from the band, and some from like the dancers and stuff. And I would just they they got so big and popular that people really wanted to be a part of them, and so it was easy to like recruit people. Like, um, and we would we would like choreograph and everything. We would have practice for the skits on like Thursday nights which was the night before the pep rally, but still it's wow. like being on the football team. And that was like the only time we really had. And so we would kind of write our ideas all, all week and then uh, put it all together Thursday night. But I mean, we got to like miss, we got to like leave football practice early to go get our skits ready. And they got, they started to get like really elaborate, like my senior year where we were using like the whole school band and like crazy stuff and it was it was it was so fun and i just remember once again a very long answer to answer your simple question but um i remember thinking that it was just like you know a silly little 
phase. Like, mm. this is just something fun that we're doing, uh, you know, before the football games. And, and it was all about, you know, football. Football was very serious. And, like, and we were really good at football uh, my sophomore, junior, and senior year. So it was like I took it very seriously, and uh, so did everybody on our team. So that was, like, the thing was football. But I remember uh, one of my coaches – had said like in the middle of the season after we had done a, a we also did a skit called Hancesca and Francesca where we dressed up like women and and we and we put on cheerleading outfits like skirts yeah and everything and I can do like a round off backflip and like my other friend could do like a front flip and they were like we would get the actual cheerleaders in there and uh we had done that and you know we did like really high pitched voice like I'm Hancesca I know like, like <laughs> And I remember just thinking, like, that my coaches probably thought, you know, this is this is a distraction or something. Like, this is too silly. We got, like, a game tonight. And one of, like, the more serious coaches came up to me after, like, the Hancesca and Francesca. And he was like, Forns. I was like, yeah. And he goes, that was hilarious. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. And he's like, he's like you, should, you should, like, go – you should, like, do some acting. You should go into acting. Uh -huh. or something along that lines and that was like my junior year when he said that and I was like so it started to get the wheels turning and then I started making videos and stuff in high school I convinced one of my teachers she's a sweetheart but I convinced her instead of doing book reports I would make the the book that I read into a movie trailer mm. and, and then I got lazy and, and wouldn't even read the book and would just make the trailer and stuff but she loved it i was the only kid that was like doing that so everybody else would give these boring book reports with like a poster and be like and the main character was <laughs> and the bad guy was and then i would like hit play and if we we just had like this movie trailer that we worked on for a while and i like edited it all together on like the old software and so i really started to like it and then when i went to college um i was wrestling at texas state and one of my electives uh i picked was acting and i and i really really started to like it whenever i thought i might even like it less when i would start to do more serious stuff when it just wasn't super silly but it, i actually liked it more okay when we, when we got into doing like like dramatic stuff in college and then uh after a year there i i liked it so much that i changed my my whole major, I changed schools. I went to film school at a completely different college after mm -hmm. that and, and did a filmmaking major with a, a minor in acting, so. Episode three with Jonat Delstra. Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There are, there are always like different kinds of artists and, and you, like seemed really you just stand out just by when you showed me get a tattoo right you have a mm -hmm. tattoo and it and you loved how imperfect it was yeah oh yeah that so you loved how you love, kind of like love the imperfection and i'm kind of the similar same way i love things that are kind of imperfect and still creative but but the meaning behind it matters a lot more yeah it's funny that you remember that uh, and i 
like first of all uh like the first part of your question i i don't really um wear my identity on my sleeve i think mm. i uh, i usually uh like i'm not the kind of artist who wears a big top hat with feathers on it and uh like uh, <clears throat> being the the archetype of an artist yeah um not that one or the other is better but like that um that's the way i uh, i approach it um when i when i look at my uh at my idols in the art world and also uh in music the songs or the the paintings or the, the photography i like the most is always it, it always has a little bit in it that i really hate mm. or um like something that went wrong or uh it, that that way it's more fun to uh, uh it, it well it's it stays fun longer in my opinion because it if something's uh, is really perfect and um and worked out for millions of hours then um i don't know it, it gets so unrealistic because i think nothing is really perfect and uh and humans are a great um example of that yeah yeah so i think i think by making stuff imperfect or keeping it imperfect it stays uh humane in a way mm. and also my friends like all of my friends sometimes i think they're fucking assholes <laughs> and that's that's why i like them so much right i really can't stand people that um try their best to um be likable all the time mm. um, i really love it when people just accept that they're um that in some in some uh, situations they're just jackasses right and just go with it yeah i can really appreciate that it's uh i know de- i definitely said too i i really enjoy people too who um who just go for it and it's just yes they may seem um not as i don't know appealing to most from the outside but then when you get to know them they're they're the best people and i just then appreciate um the authenticity you know yeah and i think that's the same with art too um from what I, I I haven't maybe I just took an art course maybe in high school or um, like one in Germany. But from from when I go to museums, the ones that stand out are always the ones that are kind of like wishy washy, mm. and um, the ones that make you just see one uh, artwork a certain way. Is like okay, I got the point, but I'd love to see like different, interesting point of views of a painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it doesn't have to be um, uh, as straightforward as uh, some people uh, make it, in my opinion. Mm. In in your exhibits, in your exhibits, do you? Um, I mean, you. I've just seen the the one. I'm. I would love to attend one one day. 
Um, but from what I've seen, it's just been on social media. It's just been on um, like on Instagram and the, the people one. That one really, I think I really enjoyed because like I loved how you uh, like you, you like to play with with lights. I can I can tell kind of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially with people, where you kind of highlight migration, if if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like gives this kind of like mystic, dark thing, like dark. I don't know. I guess I don't know aura, if that's a right word to use. Mm -hmm. But I can just imagine them walking in the desert. You know. Yeah. Even though they're not there at all. Yeah. They they were um, uh, filmed in uh, in Holland in in a concrete um, uh, industrial uh, place. I don't know. That's the that's a fun thing about that project is that the the, the people are made of uh, of trash and um, um, and just cloth like old t-shirts and and uh, draped in um, in um, um shit what's the the white paint liquid now like the white liquid stone Fuck. plaster they're they're dipped in plaster plaster okay anyway like they're they're only um a suggestion of people but when you see them all together like the whole story unfolds in your brain but you're actually looking at just um arranged trash actually <laughs> but like the whole desert there wasn't a, a grain of sand over there yet the desert was still in your mind uh so yeah that that could be uh like the power of art you know like sometimes you listen to uh to a song and it just makes you feel like you're you're reliving a, a, a very specific moment of your youth, or like you you start thinking an, a very original idea, and and the song is only the the trigger. But what happens to your head? That's really um, where like when the, where the magic happens in the, mm. in, the eye, in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, but I think in in. There's not a lot of people talking about that when you talk about art right now, because when I talk talk about art with my friends or um, or at exhibitions, it's usually about or the, the the aesthetics or how much it costs or what it says, but like the the way people perceive it, like it, it used to be bigger. I I think in um, when art was more um, like purely conceptual, although my my work is is uh, really figurative, so I think a conceptual artist really would hate my work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I maybe yeah, that's like that. That's not really something uh, that's on people's minds a lot. Mm. That that really uh, grinds my gears. That. Like when I talk about art with people who are not really um, committed to it, like medium um, interested people, then usually the conversation in about a minute 
it's about how much it's worth and about uh, the banana with the tape on it. Um, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like the, the whole part about being an artist or making art, the, the whole part I don't like is the part that's really um, uh, in your face for a lot of people. Look at the pieces and um, just enjoy it and, um, and don't worry about um, mm. some other artworks that might be um, um, only f f for the upper class or uh, like the whole people are so caught up with money. That's, that's maybe what I'm trying to say when I boil it, boil it down. Yeah. And, and when you go to a concert, people know the, know the lyrics, they, uh, they love the solos and, uh, and, uh, and the people on stage. And no one's really talking about the, the, the price of the tickets. Yet yeah. art, for some reason, because of the crazy amounts uh, collectors pay for the, for the top uh, pieces, that really uh, shines a light on um, on every layer of uh, of art. So that uh, that annoys me uh, sometimes. Episode two with David Chibalama. For uh, working or for a volunteer or for you, I know. Uh, last time we texted, you said um, I think Monday you were going to the village. How long, oh, what does a day look for you when you're at the village working with the children, uh, teaching the children? Uh, what does a day look like for you? Basically, every single moment I woke up, first of all, I will want to put this correct. When I said I was going to the village, I didn't mean going to the center. Oh, okay. The center is apparently in an urban area. Ah. The other village was my village where I am born. Oh, so you visited family. However, to have your question, yes, yes. So to answer your question, how does my day look like waking up in the morning and I'm like, I'm heading to the center? First of all, Away from my home, it's just a five or ten minutes drive to the children's center. And uh, a typical day when I have to be there, as soon as I walk into the, into the compound, I definitely am welcomed by hugs by almost every child. <laughs> Others are kneeling down to say good morning, yeah. daddy, good morning, daddy, good morning, daddy. Um, then I give them some time to listen to almost everyone. At that point of time, every child has something either to report or one has pain somewhere and is telling you, Daddy, I have pain here, or Daddy, I have this or the other. So you begin from the babies and listening to them to moving around their home to see how the rest of the employees have gone on with the cleanliness of the place. Um, 
trying to find out which child might not be well or if any of the caretakers might have identified a particular child whose health has had an issue and may need medical attention. So basically, you keep doing that. Then perhaps later, maybe you get into the administrative work to see this and the other, check emails. And yeah. at the end of it all, that is how I spend my day. I wish I wish I had a job where I would go in and I just get greeted by hugs. That's what I want. <laughs> my my brother oh, David, he doesn't get he doesn't give me a hug. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> the day you will come to Uganda, you will be welcomed by hugs from all the babies. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. We um, actually, David, yesterday, every Wednesday now, we um, cook a dish and we made yesterday, David, he wanted to try, uh, what was it called? You can, you can talk louder. Ugali. 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 Okay. That's, uh, that's our maize flour. Posho. We term it as posho. Posho. Maize flour. Yes. Maize flour. It was delicious. It's super filling. <laughs> oh yes, it's something good. What are what are some of the challenges of running the NGO? Because you, like you said, you wish you could save a lot more lives. But first of all, okay, go on. Um, but. Um, there the the challenges that are financial or how what are some of the what are some of the costs that you have to uh, take in consideration when taking on a new child i will begin with why are children abandoned The main reason as to why there are so many children abandoned in Uganda is poverty. Because the biggest percentage of Ugandans lie under or below the poverty line. So many women get unwanted pregnancies. For someone to earn what to eat a day, or for someone to be able to have two or three meals a day, to some women, they choose to go into prostitution. As a result, some of them get unwanted pregnancies. They choose to raise the children for the nine months and later abandon the children. Other children are abandoned because they are HIV positive. When the parent realizes he or she is HIV positive and the child she has given birth to is HIV positive, one chooses to abandon the child so that he or she can survive undergoing expenses of treating or taking care of that child. 
So as a result of that, there are a number of cases. We've had mothers that have been arrested having abandoned their children simply because the excuse they give is they were, they were just raped. They conceived after they, were, they, they had gotten raped. That means one received or gave birth to an unwanted baby. Now, where the challenge comes to us as the children's center, we sometimes or we receive big numbers of children sometimes, yet as per, for instance, our admission policy before any child is admitted into the children's center, that child must undergo a medical checkup. Should that child be found sick, that means we must first treat that child before the child is fully settled within the center itself. Now you realize the center is apparently still renting where it is. We haven't had our own permanent structures. So that means we have to pay rent you must pay medical bills for all the children that are in the center. You must have sufficient food. They should eat and feel satisfied. So there should be enough food for them. Their utility costs that include paying for the water bills, paying for the power bills, um, paying for gas, um, you realize there is still need for salaries for the employees, the caretakers of these children so that they too don't get fed up of taking care of them. So as a result, the list of our needs are always endless. Episode five with Aso Kim. I wasn't perfectly confident, but I always thought there's a way you can do. This is my personal philosophy. Yeah, sometimes it seems to be too big, too difficult, but there's always something we can figure out. Hmm. So minimalize step or lower the step and lower your expectation and to instead of looking at the, the far the star far away from you, just to focus on your focus on the, your next step, then mm. you wouldn't feel frustrated. That's very true for almost everything. Because if you want to do everything at once, most of the time you're not uh, gonna succeed. Or uh, depending on how you define your success, but Okay, let me show you something. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay. Can you see the wall? Yeah. I paint them all <laughs> by myself. Really? <laughs> yeah, it took so many days. My mother told me, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? <laughs> wow. From there, the green ones, all of them I did by myself. And this one, yellow. Uh, this is yellow as well. I did by myself, you know. 
Wow. <laughs> Did you do everything at once? Uh, not one. It's impossible. I did like really, really, really slowly. Right. Because you know, you know, um, I'm a worker, and I have, and I have to work in school. And after that, I, I also go to the film school, <laughs> and then also, I, I work some projects because of Corona. Because mm. of Corona, people need video making skill, right? Yeah. So that's that. I made some money. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what well, What are the notes on the left on the wall? If I can ask, the you have notes on the wall. Hey, ah, are those uh are those scripts or what is that? Uh, those are not scripts. Um, of course you know what Pixar it is, right? Pixar. Yeah, Pixar. Yeah. Uh, these are twenty second secret of storytelling. Oh wow. Putting it on paper only allows you to start fixing it. If a perfect idea stays in your head, you will never share it with anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So always keep in mind. Sometimes when you think of something again, 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 you will just like. That's true. It's, it's gonna be. It's gonna be just complicated. Would you? Would you say? that and uh, when you speak about adults and kind of diminishing the dreams that we're trying, <laughs> not that all adults are the same, but um, would you say that in Korea now generally there's kind of a change towards people who want to become filmmakers instead of maybe the traditional, um, I don't know, like doctors or lawyers or business people? Did you... Do you see a change? Yes, because uh, recently the Bong Joon-ho, the Korean filmmaker, won the prize in Oscar. Really? I had no Did idea. You know that? Oh, it's it? a short film. It's really good. Oh, it's a feature film. Ah, okay. Which which one? What is Parasite. it called? Oh, Parasite. No, I heard of it. I need to you watch it. You should watch it. It's really good. And maybe because because of that, the the vibe became a bit changed. And then actually, I'm not getting acknowledged because of the filmmaking. I guess I'm getting acknowledged by people because of um, I'm adjusting filmmaking into education. Yeah, uh, for example, I, I put children um, to make films and they should be playing a role in, on film set, for example, they should be a direct. One of them should be a director, cinematographer, an editor, and like kind of sound, the sound guy. And some of them should be actors, and then they should communicate with each other. These days, because of mobiles, they don't communicate well. To make a film, you have to communicate with others, and actually, uh, you you have to mingle with so many different type of people. Sometimes they're one of the, so one of the steps could be the old person, like senior, and then the, the other person could be really the baby, right? So they can broaden their perspectives and they can learn so many things at the same time. And when we are together, uh, I mean, more than three, then we are, we have tendency to be more wise. 
You know what I'm saying? Because when we say in public, we have tendency to say more right things instead of taking care of our profit. Yeah, I think in in public you are more you kind of have to fit yes. into everything. Is that what you're saying? Like you yes, make yes. yourself and you change yourself yeah, for the situation. Good. This is this is really educational for them because they, they can learn so many things like they uh, like creativeness and cooperation and some skill technology that they have to understand the technology. They have to know how to use so they can they can they have to use their hands so it helps them to develop their hand skill and. I also adjust one more into film into education because I I started I started inviting English speakers when we make films. So children they have to use or the, at least they have to react to the English. Uh, can you bring that uh, that so that spoon? Can you bring it? Can you move this yeah. one? They have to understand what, what it means. This is not, it doesn't make them feel nervous at all because they are really, they already become friends, each other. So it's more, right. They, they feel more freedom and they feel more excited because they don't, they don't have to, yeah. to remember and they don't have to take the task. Instead, they have to create, which is not, preferred by others. Others don't like <laughs> don't like imaginating. But children they love imaginating. You can confide with your fingers with children. I did today with my kids. <laughs> and they, they, they one of them boom 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 boom. Yeah we, we could we could hang out like that. We hang hang out like this. Yeah. But always, yeah. uh, what are you doing? Are you still a kid? Mom. <laughs> no, I'm shooting them. <laughs> That's true. Episode 6 with Armin Marquez. A degree that I could fall on back uh, if soccer didn't work out. Uh, and Right. I mean, I went, when I finished my degree, I was probably 23, 24. And I mean, I, I still had some years to play. So um, when, I re when I finished, I finished um, college. My undergraduate was in business administration. I finished on December of 2005, and I returned to Venezuela. And the next year, like 2006, I was playing professionally with players that I, I had played with when I was 18, and I had those offers. Okay, they had wow. they had played already five six years of pro, but I had a degree. Um, so yeah. it was it was just a different um, approach to it. Um, but I definitely see all the doors that it's opened for me. So definitely a big advocate of um, sports and education. It can't just be one. Um, yeah, for, for me at least. Yeah. And and then when you were talking about Vince, what I was that? Uh, um, so you played. I um, researched you online from uh, you said Zamora. Z do I say it correctly, Zamora FC? Yeah. So <clears throat> when I went back to Venezuela, um, 
I'm, I'm from my hometown is San Cristobal. And the local team there the, is one of the biggest pro teams because we're on the border with Colombia. So there's a big um, Colombian culture and Colombia is all about soccer. So Deportivo Tachira mm. is the team that I was playing U18 and U20 when I got back from England. But that team wasn't there at the moment because they were redoing the stadium. So Venezuela hosted um, the Copa America in 2007, I think it was. So when I got back, 2006 they they were still redoing some of the stadiums and so teams were playing out of the capital and you had like 10 teams playing in the capital um just while they were doing all the the refurnishings um but um so i started playing with a third division team there for a few months um and they got um to do a lot of friendly games against first division teams so a few months Mm. into it like I, I, I was reconnecting with people that I knew from, from back when I was U20 and I got an opportunity to show myself, uh, playing with a third division team, but playing against first division teams and showing that I could play at that level. So, uh, by the end of 2006, I was already with Samora FC. Um, and yeah, I played there for a couple of years and then moved around, played in different teams, um, all over the country, which was also, one of the things that I enjoyed was that I got to sort of see my country and, and travel around the country. Um, oh, yeah. Which probably I wouldn't have experienced if, if I was just working a nine-to-five job. Yeah, I, I can imagine it's um, – it's, uh, you, you probably see the, your country from a whole different perspective as well, especially when you play – in stadiums and then you have uh, people from your own country cheering um you know your team on uh what was that what kind of experience was that for you being or like do you do you remember your first time playing in a stadium yeah i mean i got to play um in in big stadiums even when i was u20 like before i came to the u.s um but I do remember like specific games throughout my career where the stadiums were packed and mm. the environment was just a, a different level. Um, Samora FC was a big rival of Deportivo Táchira and Deportivo Táchira was like my hometown's team. And that was sort of what I grew up watching. I remember being a five-year-old and going to the stadium, walking to the stadium because we were like 20 minute walk from the stadium. Um, wow. So, I got a, a chance to play many games against sort of my my youth team, and and I typically did really well when I played against them. And they, of course, brought a lot of crowds. Even when they were playing away, they would bring huge crowds to the stadiums. Um, and so those were some of the best uh, memories that I have. It was playing against um, my hometown, and even going and playing at their stadium and and a few times we've beaten them. So it, it, it was fun because at that time when I was playing in Zamora, we had the coach was from San Cristobal and we had like five or six players that were from there. So we were all, um, our team had more people from that town than the actual team that was uh, there. So it, it was fun um, just being able to show that um, we could play against them. Yeah. And, did did you did they have any um 
like your friends from your hometown who maybe went to watch you play against uh, the, your hometown's team? Did they have any like hard feelings against you or anything? Did you get any, or were they mostly supportive? Oh no, they, I think most uh, close friends they supported um, they supported me regardless of which team I was playing at. Um, but it was funny that I would go to to my hometown where we were going to play against them and would get there the, the night before or the day before. And so we would have visitors come to the hotel and we'd be able to sort of give them um, tickets for the game. And, and it, it was just a different environment. Um, it was a little bit surreal. I mean, especially you, you think now the situation that's going on in Venezuela and how the economy and everything that's going on with the politics around it, um, looking back, I, I was lucky to have that experience because right now that's not the case. Hmm. Yeah. What does, what does, what do you think, um, how does soccer play a role in Venezuela right now where there's, you know, a crisis going on? Is it, is it very suppressed? Is it suppressed or are people, is it something that keeps people up, like uplifted? Well, first of all, I think, we're clear that the pandemic is a global thing. So right now there's yeah. a huge restriction with regards to participation. Uh, the Venezuelan professional league is not taking place right now. Um, so mm. they're still deciding whether or not they're going to finish the, the current tournament. But I think um, taking a step back in, in terms of what sports can do um, for the country, I think it can play a huge role. Um, however, um, there needs to be some work around and there needs to be some intentionality behind it. Uh, and what I mean by that is the, the children or the youth in Venezuela see sports as a, an opportunity or, or way out of the situation. So they see all these players that made it to um, professional soccer teams abroad or Venezuela's first, first sport is baseball. So we have a lot of players that make it to the major leagues um, and so that's a big hope uh, for kids. They, they, they look up and they say, okay, if I'm able to make it as a pro athlete, I'll be able to sort of take my family out of this situation, uh, make it abroad and, and just ex escape that situation. Um, however, the problem is 99% of them are not going to make it. And, and, and mm. so the, the problem is, what are they equipped? What skills do they have when they fall short of being a, becoming a professional athlete? Um, did they finish high school? Did they finish elementary school? And if not, yeah. what are they going to contribute to society if they fall short? Um, and then, of course, the problem is at the root. So who are the coaches right now? The coaches are ex-pro athletes who were in the same situation. They they finished, they played 15, 20 years of professional soccer or baseball or whatever it may be. They know the game inside out, but they probably didn't finish high school. They probably don't have the leadership skills to be able to impart that wisdom um, to make sure that the next generation does something different, that they do finish school um, while they are pursuing their dreams and realizing that, okay, there, there's life beyond the sport. So making sure that they are learning skills that go beyond the sport itself um, is, is a focus that's not there. 
here in the U.S., yeah. I feel, and, and I've, I mentioned before, I, I work with um, youth academies for soccer. And I think that the emphasis is still on the sports side. There isn't much emphasis on the life skills, uh, at least at least in terms of mm. the curriculum um, and, and being intentional about imparting that wisdom and taking advantage of how kids look up to coaches. Um, however, here in the U.S., you have kids that are going to really great schools. Um, most of them had family or have parents that went to college. Um, so it's a different environment um, and, and a different sort of role that the coaches play. Um, but I still think that there is an opportunity um, there um, to leverage sports. Yeah. Episode four with Nicole Brickstock. Um, the problem was more in like the person I was dating. Basically, her her family found out that we were dating, and basically like made us break up and told her that she was never allowed to talk to me again, or like essentially they would disown her. So that was like really, really difficult for me to go through and for her obviously to go through, especially like as we were kids. I mean, when I think about it now, it like really hits me like, wow, we were kids when this happened to us. And like, that's like, we're already so, so vulnerable being LGBT kids. But when when it was happening, it didn't really feel like it was discrimination and also it was like discrimination against children. Um, but looking back now, I'm like, wow, that was doubly horrible. I mean, it's uh, these, uh, I guess it t- took probably so much courage for you to grow from that and to kind of, you know, come out and uh, in that kind of atmosphere where, you know, oh, wow, this, these parents discriminate, discriminate me, my, my right to be myself and like that there's this this blockade of like okay no you're different and so was would you say was that kind of was that also something like a catalyst for you to um get into human rights yeah definitely um that's pretty much what actually brought me to the organization that i'm working for now which is called child usa and i had originally applied to work for them because they were or they've been wanting to do a research project on conversion therapy which is like predominantly in America at least I'm pretty sure like mostly used with children like queer kids um so that's really why I was so interested in working there because I like I know how hard it is being queer as a kid and having other people tell you that like your identity is wrong and that you need to do something about it and and change yourself to be normal or be okay or like be like I, I I don't know I remember her family referred to it as like a problem that needed to be solved and I feel like when you're a kid you you internalize a lot of those things so now that I'm an adult and really interested in actively working in the human rights field I want to like go back and address a lot of those issues that I faced growing up and make it easier for other LGBT youth to like get get through childhood and become adults and prosper and live really great lives. But it can be really hard when you're a kid. Like it was always really hard for me to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I want to somehow make it easier for other kids to, to like see that light. 
when you talk about internalizing something as a kid, it's, uh, it's, you may not realize at the moment, but later on you remember it deeply and it kind of like affects how you go through your daily life. And you're like, wow, my father didn't like that I did this, but he was proud of me doing this. A lot of adults probably still carry those maybe wounds. Would you say those are wounds? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think exactly what you were saying, like everything we're told and fed as children really sticks with us like it sticks with us in our minds and in our bodies um and even now like as we're young adults our brains are still developing so anything that we hear or experience still really affects the ways that our brains are working and the way that we function and think so it's really important to to address the discrimination that any kind of minority is feeling um, and experiencing because it does affect their brains and everything that happens throughout the rest of their lives, especially when it happens at a young age and it's happening a lot. So yeah, I think the queer community definitely has a lot of those wounds um, and working through it is really the, the only way to go forward. Um, all of my queer friends have a, like have experienced some level of mental health issues and I think a lot of that has to do with like living in a society that tells you you know that being straight is yeah right you're different, that you're different and that yeah. being straight is normal and anything other than that is wrong or deviant yeah but don't you think that with our generation it kind of changes like i think it's with the protests that we have right now a lot of them are predominantly younger or millennials and and uh, even children who are growing up during these times, they're going I mean, for one, they're going to grow up as germaphobes because <laughs> they grew up during a pandemic. True. And secondly, they're hope hopefully they're going to be great uh, advocates of human rights mm -hmm. as we experience the protests stemming from um, from Floyd. Yeah, I think I'm I'm definitely in agreement with what you're saying, and very hopeful that people of our generation are a lot more progressive and accepting of people who are different from them. Um, I do think with any kind of progress, there also is inevitably going to be pushback against that, which you can see like in the Trump administration repealing healthcare for trans individuals, like during pride month um, and the like violent murders of black trans women that have have happened throughout history but also have been happening in the last few weeks while the civil rights like er, movement is happening again and there's so much like limelight on it right now so while there has been certainly like an insane amount of progress and today is like marks five years since the day the supreme court legalized same-sex marriage which is incredible oh today? yeah it was five years ago today i believe Wow, I should do better research. <laughs> I think it was today. Uh, Wait, today today is June twenty sixth, Friday, June twenty sixth. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, I believe. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. So that was five years ago, and for me, like growing up, for some reason, one of the things that always made me feel like less like sort of like a second class citizen like less than fully human was the fact that I couldn't grow up and like marry the person who I wanted to love but that the day that the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage I like 
started to feel whole and I didn't really like I never knew what it could feel like in a world where I would have like equal rights and it's definitely made my life feel a lot more just like happy something as simple which is like I mean I don't want to dumb down like the accomplishment to call it simple but like something as straightforward as like the right to marry really does make a really big difference for like the people on the ground who never had that when we were in Quito Ecuador and we worked with uh, street children and the nonprofit organization at Ubesi how how there too they kind of they preached education I mean they the whole concept was to show these families who work on markets who normally would um, need their children to work these I mean kids zero to 18 uh, who would have to work in order to provide for the family but this program kind of taught them um, that education is a way out of out of this out of um, poverty in the long run is that do you see a lot of like that kind of work done in Nepal yeah I mean I'd say that a lot of the a lot of the NGOs and organizations working with trafficking survivors focus on education broadly in the sense that they want to equip survivors with the tools to like reintegrate into society and be able to support themselves in a way where they won't have to worry about being re-trafficked. Um, so for some of them, yeah, that looks like completing their high school education. Um, for some of them, it, it might look like learning like the ins and outs of sewing and being able to like start your own business so you can make your own money and you don't have to rely on anybody else. So yeah, I definitely think that education like loosely defined is certainly the best way to prevent and address the issues that survivors of trafficking are facing. Episode 7 with Ray Zahab. Anything monetary off of this, you know? Well, so so it's my living. It's what I do for my living, right? Do I, I do expeditions. And so basically the way it works for me from a career perspective, and it's just something, again, that was never planned. It just kind of like happened. Was um, or is. Uh, so I, I do these expeditions and, I, and I'm very uh, grateful for the support that I have from my various partners and sponsors. And so that I do these expeditions and I use it as a way to raise additional funding for my foundation called Impossible to Possible, where I take kids on expeditions around the world and those expeditions are free of charge and I'm a volunteer in that organization. So it's kind of like those two things fuel each other and it's like, you know, one's kind of like a job, the other's a passion. And then how I take care of my family, like be able to support my family. Trust me, it's not a business to get rich in. Okay. That's not happening anytime <laughs> soon. But I mean, I may, I, you know, I do a lot of corporate speaking for fortune 100 companies all over the world. And, um, you know, I, I have written a couple of books and stuff like that. So early on, I, I, you know, it's been many, many years since I wrote a book. So I have another one coming out. And so, you know, these are the sorts of things I do to, to take care of my, my family and make sure that I can keep food on the table. Right. right? I mean, it's uh, it's just uh, for example, you were on the Samantha Gash podcast, and um, yeah, and she she and Colin O'Brady kind of like 
pioneered this calendar club challenge that I took part in. And my family, you know, saw me running, running in circles just to get the miles in and asked me, what are you getting out of this? And to me, it was just uh, like you said in the beginning was, you know, pushing my own limits. I've never ran. I've done marathon maybe two years ago, but the calendar club kind of taught me what you're uh, able to do. And um, I guess that's, do you think that's something how that kind of like applied to you early on as well? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I, you know, when, when I started doing, for me, I was learning things about myself that were very personal. You have to remember when I was racing in ultras and I was going around the world and I was picking ultras that were very adventure based because mm -hmm. I come from in the short period of time from, you know, when I was smoking to racing bikes to, um, adventure racing, you know, that concept of going and doing things, um, that were more adventurous were really appealing to me. And so I was picking races that were in far off parts of the world, Libya, Niger, uh, in the Amazon and Brazil, um, these sorts of things. And those were the races I was picking. So, you know, and this was also a time that was pre-social media, right? So you weren't necessarily influenced by what you were seeing mm. online. You're, you're, the people that were, I was influenced by uh, that I was reading about were doing things like it would have been like, you know, reading about Amundsen or, you know, something like that, right? Where, uh, or my friend, uh, you know, Richard Weber, who's, you know, the, arguably one of the greatest polar explorers that ever lived and hearing their stories of adventure and just trying to capture a little bit of that. And then through those crazy adventures, like being in Brazil, mm. you know, in the middle of the jungle, running this race, getting parasites, uh, you know, overcoming fears and realizing that I could overcome a tremendous amount of fear. Like, I mean, there's, there's, dude, there's stuff all over that jungle that wants to get you. Right. And <laughs> I believe, you it, know, yeah. it, and so it, um, it taught me things about myself that really truly were about myself. If, if I, mm. there's, it's very hard to, to put it any other way. No one really, it didn't really matter to anyone that I was out there. I was doing these things for me. I wasn't posting mm. about it because there was no posting. I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like I was out right. there just doing this because I wanted to do it. And realistically, no one was ever going to hear about it other than the people that I was in the race with. Right. And my family and my yeah. close friends and maybe the people that I would email in those days. But I mean, it was, it was a different sort of, so for, so to ask, you know, what was my, my head, my perspective on things was much different because of the mm. world that we live in as well. Right. And yeah. um, not to say that that's any different now. And nor would it be any different for anybody else that's perhaps starting out now. We all do mm -hmm. the things we want to do because we genuinely want to do them, not because mm -hmm. um, of of anything else. What I'm trying, what I am saying is that I didn't, I you know, you you went into your project with an idea of what could happen, right? I might, maybe I'm gonna something extraordinary is gonna come from this, right? Right. Yes. And yeah. for me, it was like. I just want to see if I can do this shit, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm learning something amazing. And then yes, after time, I grew the wisdom that you had on day one. It took me two or three of these big races to figure out, oh, wait a sec, maybe I'm, there's going to be some real mega personal growth from all this, right? 
Do you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Although I had perspective yeah. after the first race, as I mentioned before, but from a personal perspective of what is possible, you know, I, there just wasn't a lot of information out there about that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, mm. uh, of, of people encouraging you to reach out and find your dreams. It was there. Maybe I just didn't know where to look in those days, but now you can find those resources quite easily be inspired by it. Then an opportunity comes along and you're like, Hey, this is my chance, you know? And that's, right. that's the awesomeness of today's world. You know? Yeah. Yeah, completely. And with your, your children now, do your children look at you um, like they want to follow your footsteps now or do they, do they think you're crazy? <laughs> well, you know, like my wife, my wife's a really uh, great ultra runner. Um, you know, she, she finished second at, at Moab last year and she, she does these races and she only has time to train for one race per year because she's full time uh, working as an environmental engineer and as a, uh, a gender uh equity and uh, uh, issues specialist. And so she's a consultant. So she's super busy with work. Right. And so, but she's not hanging her medals, finisher medals on the wall. I, you know, I have a Guinness record. I got all these awards. I don't even know. And you know what? They're all with not any disrespect, but they're all tucked away into a filing cabinet. We don't have them Mm. hanging on walls in our houses because I want my girls to set their own goals and their own dreams uh, and not try to measure success against what their mom has done or what I do for a living, but rather just be passionate about the mm. outdoors. And so they're 12 and nine when they were little, I'm talking like, dude, they couldn't even walk. We'd have them in the backpack hiking up on the trails and I'd take them out of the backpack and I'd let them crawl around the, you know, whoever was not walking, you know, at the, at the time it was in the pack and, uh, they'd fall down on the rocks and they'd get up again and they'd fall down and that's how they started. By the time they were three, they were Nordic mm. skiing in the winter. You know, um, now they're both expert state skiers, Nordic skiers, and um, they both uh, are, are incredible trail runners. We don't pressure mm. them. We let them make, you know, it, we, do, we do some pretty big runs with them with a lot of elevation, but it's up to them. It's not about grooming them to be ultra racers. I could care less if they ever want to do a trail race. I just want them to hopefully find passion in the outdoors and love being out there. Now, the, the family trips are getting more and more epic. We were up in Grossmorn National Park, which is in western mm. Newfoundland, hiking and, and camping. This was uh, – and trail running. This was – gosh, Annika was six at the time, so it would be three right. years ago. And now um, – you know, we're planning some pretty epic trips with COVID this year. We're, you know, we're sort of, we're, we're going to stay in mm. Quebec, but there's some epicness in Quebec to do. And then we have some big trips planned in the future as a family. And yeah, those are starting to get into expedition zone a little bit, if you know what I'm saying. So naturally and organically, if they move that way and they want to do, you know, exploration professionally, I'm all for it. But if they're like, nah, I want to be a, a you know, a, uh, whatever it is they want to be. I want to own an ice cream shop and I want to do this stuff on the weekend. I'm cool with that. You know what I mean? Like it's whatever they want to do. Episode 8, Otto Baum. In your opinion, what do you think is one of the stronger opinions when it comes to art or what you do that you think most people probably don't think like this? 
Wow, yeah, that's, um, I had this, um, like this theme with colleagues of my art collective, for example. Yeah, I mean, I can say for, for myself, I'm interested in these um, technical parts and to create also artworks based on a technique, which is just my thing. My colleague, for example, he's totally not, or he don't agree in this um, opinion, I, I, I can mm -hmm. say. And and then I see, yeah, wow, it's it's based on a technique, but that's how it is. If I go, when I go to a museum and I see an art piece and then I ask myself, how is this done? You know, the meaning itself, I don't care about it actually, but yeah. how is it done? How is it possible to make like by hands and no printer, for example, just by hand make this happen, no? So this is for me something and if or when I do art or when I um, do bigger works, yeah, that, that, I, that I give the, the audience or the, the people who look at my art or the, the, yeah, the stuff, that they ask themselves, okay, how did he do it? Mm -hmm. That's actually the, the strongest meaning. Does it make sense? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think, I think the, the, to, the how to me is also a lot more interesting, especially if I go to a museum and an art museum and I see something where it's like, okay, the, the meaning is written or it's not, doesn't, no, that may be completely wrong. I don't know. But mm -hmm. the meaning mm -hmm. could be interpreted how you want it. But I think more importantly is like, how did the artist come? I mean, it's just unimaginable to me, unimaginable mm -hmm. to me how you can be so so precise and you mm -hmm. have this vision and then it comes together perfectly that yeah. to me is something where like how does how do you that's so rare it's just yeah. Yeah. so rare that's true and i think also in lettering you know when i when i paint the wall in the city and i do this nerdy strokes and form letters i think if somebody goes and who's not familiar with um this person can think something like, wow, is this on one hand handmade? Yes, it is handmade. And who's so crazy who's doing it, you know? Yeah. Because nowadays we are packed with digital stuff, but really a handcraft, who can who can do it, you know? Mm. And this this pops out because it's not a normal thing that somebody is writing a, a handwriting by hand. Mm. and big maybe yeah so yeah. and this is yeah so i show i show it and i do it for myself in the end but this is also the interesting thing for me to to learn it and to i want to i want to be possible to do it right i want i want also impress maybe a customer if if a customer comes and says yeah now you made here the nice wall can you maybe write uh this name to the wall and then I can choose in my 10 styles, combine them maybe, you know, and then I do something nice for them, which is really unique. And you will find no other person who can do it like this <laughs> to, to step out. So it's also when, when, when people from workshops ask me, or sometimes we have also students in our studio, yeah, working around and then 
the group stands in front of you and asks you questions like, yeah, how, how should I, what, what should I do? Um, and then, or yeah, they, they, they have big eyes and think, wow, how is this possible? You know, <laughs> I say, hey, just focus on one thing, go and do your thing, whatever it is, you will be one day a master in it and nobody mm. else will do it. So you will pop out really mm. this is the thing focus your stuff <laughs> on what yeah no it's a uh, it's especially at, like at, in my age i think i mean there's so many people who um you know they focus on yes like we said previously secure job and then but it's to actually stand out i mean and nowadays there's so many people who have bachelors there are less people who have apprenticeships or like ausbildung lehre in german uh so it's so much more i think more important to like stand out it's it's i think a lot more welcome now to be weird <laughs> yeah 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 but yeah okay maybe weird but um yeah why actually you know but maybe on one day you will have your yeah you you will everybody's looking on you maybe you know because mm. it's a special thing and i i think if you if you focus um something now and you will do it the next 10 days uh, 10 years or 20 years wow i mean the lettering itself the brush lettering i do it i started september 2010 you know the date so, no not the date but the month because I bought from, I was um, really into these um, poster, uh, like the, the poster fonts from the 60s, 50s from America, yeah? I, okay. I saw it on the internet and I asked myself, how is it possible? How did they do it, yeah? And then I understood, okay, that's sign painters. They just get paid to doing this. And for sure in the 50s, 60s, there were no machines to build easy, handwritten posters you know obviously you have to do it with um, uh, a tool like a, a brush something like this and then i was um looking in in the internet and ordered through a airbrush like an airbrush um on online shop i ordered mm. this brushes from the us and that were in september 2010 okay <laughs> and then i get a bunch of uh, brushes and some paint i bought like really random because I thought I need everything. <laughs> and then I started practicing in my studio and I did it every day and I jumped really in and I thought, wow, this is so cool. I want to learn more. And then I um, went to workshops uh, from, from different sign painters around the world and I learned there a lot. I also invested some money for no problem, but I did it for two, three years just for my for myself instagram where not uh, happened for me because i don't had a, a smartphone you know in mm. this time so i was really focused on this and then the, the hype about sign painting came up because of a movie called the sign painters and okay. when did when, but, did when did that come out i'm sorry uh 2013 and uh, this this movie uh, it's about um sign painters in the u.s uh -huh. and about their um, their job in the like 60s, 70s, 80s, and then the machines came and took their jobs actually, you know? So ah, it's actually, that's interesting. It's actually a dramatic way. Hmm. So this, this movie, you can have a look on iTunes 
for example. Okay. And the sign painters. Yeah, they also made a book um, about the video. So it was it was actually the first um, documentary, which like one one two hours something like this about the scene about the sign painters from the U.S. Yeah, it was mm. um, a big hype about this, and the hype brought those people who who were interested in learning it. So nowadays, there are a lot of, or there are some sign painters, for example, Mike Meyer from Minnesota, Mazeppa. He's um, an American sign painter and <laughs> a lovely person and really yeah. an entertainer. And he's so good in his style and he's traveling the world and shows everybody like the Western or the European people who are interested in, I mean, everywhere actually, New Zealand, Italy, Greek, Germany, everywhere. He's traveling and give workshops, you know. Imagine you, as one person you are interested in your 20s doing this job and then you, you see you can't really make money out of it because uh. all the technical machines will do your jobs, but there are people who want to learn want to learn a handcraft <laughs> you know i also met him we um i took some workshops with him and i jumped really into the field of brush lettering mm. but then um some years later i decide okay i'm i don't want to be a sign painter i want to know all the, the knowledge about it and the practice cool but i don't want to work as a sign painter because mm. It was a tough job in the end, you know? Yeah. And it's actually, you know, somebody is doing, maybe a graphic designer or sometimes the job owners by themselves, they do a logo which looks not really good. And then you as a sign painter has to put it on a wall or on a window, gilding it or whatever. But for me, it's not a fun part, actually. Oh. Yeah. So it's more a free work for me. So, and then I decide, okay, I will do wall paintings and I, or I will work for advertising, maybe do a hand lettering for an advertising. You will earn way more than doing a sign for somebody who will pay less money, you know, especially mm. in Berlin, nobody, nobody take, take really care about this handcraft and pay you well, or pay you this amount you should get for, you know? Mm. Yeah. Episode 10 with Kyle Dutcher. Now I think it wasn't, I, I watched the, the trailer of the wife swap and I saw like one of the big themes was that how you guys really pay attention to spending time with your family. And That's good. Uh, so now you're kind of like a whole, like it's, it's very much a part of your, is it almost like a routine or is it like just a way to unwind your day? uh spending time with each other or roller like roller skating together as a family uh um here lately um yes and no like um alan's been getting into other things like um riding working out basically just uh just exploring other options and, and other things to do just venturing off being with her friends and stuff like that uh the kids are totally down with skating whenever I mention it. We also do um, 
indoor rock climbing. And mm. another thing that we do a lot uh, together as a family is we go hiking <coughs> or, or we'll mm. go electric skateboarding on our electric skateboards. Just, just check, just being outside, just um, away from electronics. And uh, a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll get together and we'll go riding our four wheelers and stuff like that out in some trails that I know of. As long as it's not always consistent being at home on the computer or on the games and or on your phone uh, we all you know sh she's actually helped out a lot as far as uh finding different places to hike and and, and go um hiking so um, and, and i also saw your son has this for how old is he as he's a pilot now he can fly a plane <laughs> he's not a pilot yet um <laughs> <laughs> he um he's got three and a half hours um flight time uh -huh. And, and that last post that we posted, uh, I got to go up with him. It was a it was a Father's Day gift from him to me. He's pretty chill up there. He's he, he is flying an airplane. Like they that that time they let him. That time I went up with him. Uh, of course, a flight instructor was with us, but pretty much he they 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 walk him through the whole flight plan, like the whole flight assessment thing where you have to you know check the plane check the propeller check the engine check all the buttons you do a bunch of checks it takes like 30 40 minutes to do it and then finally when you get in it uh you take off and they let him take off they let him fly for about an hour and 15 minutes um we went from fulton industrial airport to stone mountain around stone mountain up to marietta wow. Uh, we flew over Dobbins Air Force Base with permission. And then we flew back to uh, Charlie Brown Airport, which is in, off Fulton Industrial. And then um, he let them, the instructor let them land. And that's what really like wowed me because I was like, holy cow. And, you know, that that's 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 where it was like, OK, you know. Uh, a 14 year old my 14 year old son is going to land this plane on a 4,000 foot long runway and three lives in a plane exactly exactly and, and you know the instructor you know he he knows my kid uh he he um uh, he obviously trusts him but also the instructor also had you know he took his hand off the wheels and, and literally just barely had his hand on the throttle uh, but he let my son basically land that plane by himself with him there to help. Uh, so wow. I was super proud. I mean, I, I, I must have, I was glowing, you know, cause I, I didn't, you know, like, I, I'm not, I'm not scared of death. I, I'm, it's, a, it's a, it would probably, I, I think of death as peaceful. So like, mm -hmm. I was like, uh, and, and my son was calm, you know, Mr. Chill. And so I, I just, man, I was along for the ride. You know, if, if anything bad happened, I, I want to be there with them. If it didn't, you know, I was, I was down yeah. for it. I, <laughs> so it was an experience. It was like a eye-opening, adrenaline rush, most proud I've ever been of my son to this day when he landed that plane. You have to let your guard down. Like, mm -hmm. I mean... And and he's been training. I think Elon told me he was not he, a little over three years. Yep, 
Oh, wow. And in three years, he has three and a half hours experience. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, class time involved in mm. what he's been doing. He, he's put he's put in the time what, what does he want to do with it does he want to uh anything in like aviation. what kind of pilot anything in aviation mm. i think you he, he he he's talked about aeronautics in, in you know being an engineer he's talked about being a, a an airplane mechanic i know one thing at this time he doesn't really want to be a um, commercial airline pilot he would rather be a private airline pilot or, um, mm -hmm. and plus he just wants to eventually, you know, be able to rent a plane or, or buy a plane of his own and just fly recreationally. Yeah. That's, that's, that's admirable. It's, uh, um, yeah. I, I cannot imagine myself at 14 being up there with <laughs> my father in the back <laughs> and my teacher on the right. Well, he, that's, that's the last time he flew, he was probably 12 or 13. And, you know, he, I, I watched him take off, but of course they don't let him land. And he said he got to steer the plane and that was about it. Um, you know, bank and stuff like that and fly like that. I mean, he, he's been up. It's just, with his dad in the back seat and and I we see each other again I'll be happy to show you the video of him landing an airplane so yes please it takes i guess for you obviously skill and then also the will to want to coach do you think you ever find yourself in that situation do you ever have like a coaching personality is that just something that's very natural to you to want to want to help people get better um not at first uh so many people ask um i, I guess if you was walking down the street and they were like Bjorn, you the way you walk is so cool <laughs> you know can you show me how to do it and, and you like no nah, go away and then they keep coming and then more people come and then you got a whole bunch of people behind you you better start teaching i better start running <laughs> or people are gonna get mad at you <laughs> so i mean basically i don't see myself as a teacher but i do understand the physics of it and, and when i do give my classes uh you're you know if you was to take my class you will sweat it is not easy uh because people want to learn my style i tell them right i mean up front this is not the easy road um being slow and being smooth is not the easiest way to skate um uh, it requires you to pretty much have your legs bent the whole time it's mm. kind of like doing a wall sit like it's kind of like squatting down and walking with your legs bent all the time it's a lot of um a lot of strain on your lower body yeah so, um it, 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 you'll build up some muscle but you'll, you'll also build muscle memory and that's just what I try to teach I try to teach the physics of it uh, of some of my moves and then I also explain a lot of my moves aren't as hard as they look uh, it, it, it's m more mm. like an, uh, an illusion a lot of my moves are illusions so kind of like the moon one. yeah no you get the sense from like often like it's like 
like you uh like it slows down like every and especially when you're in a ring with other people like everyone's super quick and then you do go backwards and it seems like everything just like slows down for a second or two i agree <laughs> it's uh i didn't know it looked like that until someone showed me a video and i was like okay cool <laughs> Episode 12 with Caroline Connors. Separate the two of those. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It always feels so weird to, like, go somewhere and learn a language for, like, a couple months and then just, like, not really be able to use it. I mean, Spanish is different because, like, especially living in New York, you can speak Spanish with a lot of people. Yeah. Like, Italian, not really so much. There's a little Italy, right? Yeah, I can go to Little Italy and find an old woman and beg her to speak to me. Yeah. Which I've done before, and I'll do it again. Yeah. No, I have not. Uh, but in in so I stalked your I stalked your LinkedIn, but um, oh no, it's all fake. <laughs> so you in your when you you were there was a description on how you spend your time in Italy. And so you're translating and writing content across multiple digital platforms. Oh, yeah. In addition to coordinating events, proceeding, and following Mm -hmm. concerts held at world-renowned classical music venues throughout Italy. And I remember you being in theater and singing as well, right? So you and uh, so did, did, how, how did, how did that, how did you experience this? So, um, that was an internship for my school, um, at Divertimento Ensemble in, which is based out of Milan. And, um, like most, I don't know, businesses in Italy, it was like seven people working there. And so it was just me and like the kind of main administrator. Um, we would like meet up in this shared workspace and she would so obviously like wasn't fluent in Italian and especially when I first got there so there would be like a a um newsletter like mm. their newsletters and all their website pages she would like very roughly translate them into um English from Italian and then I would write them in like proper English okay um and it was very very fun to like talk to her all the time about like these little phrases that I was using or like try to explain them to her like the one I remember right now is she she's like I can't figure out when you add up after a verb like one time she was going to like warm something up with microwave it and she was like I'm going to warm this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, you could say, like warm it up or like heat it up. And she was like, I don't understand when to add up. And I was like, well, neither do I. <laughs> yeah, and I had hard. to think about it for so long. I was like, I don't even know why I say that. There are just a bunch of things you just memorize that you say up after them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many. That's that's to me, too. And I think in in I remember in Germany, it's being taught very, very much so that it's I mean, it's Oxford English, so it's the British kind, but the bad guy. <laughs> in a way, it was like okay, 
yes to warm because you can say um, aufwärmen is the German word for warm, warming something up but if you say it in English it would translate directly if you know you don't really know uh, what it's really how, you, how to really say it it's uh, it would be to warm this I mean most people in the world learn like British English in their um, you know like studies at home and so it is it is hard to like explain things I felt like I was yeah trying to teach not even necessarily slang but just like idioms sometimes that I couldn't even explain myself because I had never thought about them mm. and sometimes she would be like sometimes she would <laughs> write something in English and I would be like oh well I mean it's more she would be like she would always ask does this sound English and I would say no I mean you could it would be better if you said this like that would sound more like native and um native speaker obviously um and sometimes she would like kind of argue with me and be like no that's not right and I was like mm, well I don't know what to say <laughs> <laughs> I was like yeah I guess but <laughs> yeah but no she was really nice and really cool and like I wish I don't know I always wish that I had a job that was like that cool mm. and fun yeah in America <laughs> um and in Milan uh, is it I've never been there is it true I mean from what I hear just everything fancy is in Milan it so it definitely is very fancy sometimes <laughs> um it's like they're it's by far their most metropolitan city mm -hmm. um which is like kind of funny when you go there because they say that it's very metropolitan but then like compared to New York or London or like Hong Kong or something it's not at all yeah um but like it still is very Italian but then it's also like pretty industrial uh -huh. um it's it's interesting like I don't know if I would like if you're going to go on an Italian vacation I would say like that's not like the place I would recommend going but living there like by far that is the that is the place I would want to live out of all the cities mm. um just because it's kind of the only one that's not like and here's the Italian village and here are the here's the big museum and then um also there's gelato yeah <laughs> it's like there's a lot going on and it's like the the number one fashion whatever city yeah so it's is there any special uh, or is there any TV or any uh, program uh, that you that's like up there for you that you want to work I for? I like more alternative comedy, which feels like kind of not like harder to break into because it's like smaller. But yeah when I look at like network sometimes I'll just google like network tv shows and just see like what's on the air right now and I'm like I'm like yeah I guess I would want to write for one of these but that's also like that doesn't feel like my dream like I would rather be a part of like Nathan for you or like the Eric Andre show or something more crazy <laughs> or like I think you should leave you know mm -hmm. that type of like smaller mm -hmm. um and just less based on story and more just like pure comedy like the whole thing is just like pure jokes there's no there's no pathos <laughs> yeah 
They're ethos. Wait, ethos is emotion, right? Please don't ask me that while we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer confidently. I think, yeah. I think ethos is more of like ethics and pathos is more of like <laughs> please edit this out immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's gonna stay. Oh my god. But yeah. It, did you so I mean first to stand up to me, for example, I mean I know you want to get into writing, but you have done stand up. Isn't it so scary? Though, I mean, laugh, making someone laugh is, and wanting to make someone laugh. And then there's a risk of not making them laugh. It is. It's such a, it's terrifying. It is. I mean, I think you just have to like have a good set that you feel good about and that you've rehearsed and that you've like hopefully consulted with people about like comedians or friends or whatever. So you can feel better about it. The open mics I've done here, I would say, like, went okay. I mean, I think I did, like, three. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I did three. Um, In one of them, I just, like, beat up a pinata, and it was, like, kind of a weird group to do that in front of. Like, they were all, like, theater, more kind of, like, theater-based people <laughs> who were doing very, like, stand-up-y stand-up. Um, just, like, okay. you know observational like when people say you park in the driveway but you drive on the parkway <laughs> kind of like jokes and then I was like I hate despicable me I'm gonna beat up a minion's pinata and they were like okay <laughs> please leave um and yeah, and then I tried to do kind of more stand-up-y stand-up, and that's just, like, not really what I'm interested in, but just didn't really know what to do. It feels weird to, like, bring a big, like, performance art piece to, like, an open mic where, like, you never know, like, when you're going or if you're going to be able to perform, and, like, you don't know, like, who's in the room. And, I mean, okay, with stand-up, it's, like, yeah, I guess you never know, like, who's in the room, if they're going to think it's funny or not. But um, I think mm. with an open mic, whereas like shows in the like Brooklyn comedy scene that you get booked onto, like, you know, people like usually kind of know what they're booking and you know at least some of the people you would be on the show with and that they will know, they will understand it. <laughs> but with an open mic, it's kind of like a kind of a shot in the dark a little bit. But um right. Yeah, I like kind of more of a like performance art weird thing with like props and not just like me saying mm. Jerry Seinfeld like observational things, which I like. I'm not like making fun of that. I'm just making fun of the idea of myself doing that because it is embarrassing. Going kind of going back, how does how does your um? I love your family completely. Just a few but... times, I've. I've... <laughs> I've no no I I'm just asking how how do they how did they kind of like support you with with coming because they see I thought your whole family is for one all every time I'm there or I was there I haven't been there in a long time I it was just hilarious and uh everyone kind of had the same humor it it, it seems like a very self-supportive uh like a very strong family is well thank you, Can you speak to that um 
I think, yeah, my family is very funny. I mean, my parents, like, that's why my mom always says that they're, you know, my parents are, are together and knew that they were like right for each other is because they had a very similar sense of humor. Um, and so I think that that was something that was just obviously very important to them. And it's in some ways, like what my family can always go back to if we're fighting or if bad things are happening, we can still, we still all kind of share a common like sense of humor, mm -hmm. even though like a lot of things I do, like my mom will tell me I'm acting stupid. <laughs> She's like, I don't like when you act like this. And I'm like, well, actually this is my prime. <laughs> like you're you're acting yeah. very stupid I'm like well that's fine and that's the the difference really comes up the most have you ever played quiplash quick lash quiplash it's like a it's a jackbox tv game okay and it's like it'll like everyone goes on like you know the website on their phone and it'll ask two people the same question and you all get to answer two questions and it's basically just like think of the funniest answer to this question um, and the difference in our senses of humor really comes out where like my brother for every answer will just write I'm gay or abortion and, and my parents will like really think of like the kind of like wittiest thing they can come up with which like sometimes is good but they kind of don't understand I guess my brother and I just being really stupid they will not understand it but they just don't think it's funny they're like mm. They're like, why are you just writing gay for everything? <laughs> um, this is prime. But no, I think, yeah. Episode 19 with Sarah Dodge. I get the patience, the, 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 um, when I fold the dough and then I put them in, and then it's like, oh, this doesn't look right. Like it's not, there's not, you know, when you fold it and you want to build tension and it's like, oh, there's not enough tension there and I'm going to rest it more. And it's like, rest it for like 15 minutes. And like, and then I find myself just resting for five minutes. And so yeah. it happens and, a lot. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've had several employees now that, um, you know, I'm teaching bread and I'll go back and be like, you you didn't wait the 15 minutes and I can see it. I can tell. All I do is touch it and I know. Uh -huh. And what sucks is like that 10 minutes can make a huge difference, right? Um, and I just think with bread, you know, with, with pastry, there's kind of always a tool to like make it better almost. Like you can freeze the butter, you can fridge the butter, you can take the butter and put it on the oven and speed up the process. Um, with bread and fermentation, like, you have to like bread is going to do what bread wants to do and bread wants to do it. Like there's no, the bread is in control of you. And I think that that's kind of, you have to learn to work with the bread. Um, mm. and therefore, and I shouldn't say pastry, like chefs in general, like, um, I think that professional cooking and baking is a very like ego driven job in, in general. And bread is going to be like, nah, like I'm going to knock you down and like, you have to follow me. And it's like, oh, okay, mm. cool. <laughs> so you really have to kind of like learn to go with the bread. And I think, um, I think in our society where we want control over everything, like, you know, I want control, but there's days when you have to be like, okay, this bread's going to take another hour. And this is all, all I can do is just wait. Like that's yeah. all I can do. So. so in a sense, bread is like uh, COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs>
but not. Let's not compare <laughs> to COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's horrible, Bjorn. Uh, yeah, that's interesting, though. I've, I've like, I've always like known that because uh, I've had restaurants approach me and be like, "Hey, we're trying to like have just like a standard bread program at our restaurant." And they're like, "We can't keep our starter alive." And I'm like, mm. "Would well, you eat it every day? Like, let's just start there." And they're like, "Oh no, why?" And I'm like, "No, you have to feed your starter every day, <laughs> like minimum every day." Like, I yeah. So, you know, there's just, there's a lot of things to bread that, um, it, none of it's hard, but it's just paying attention and, um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. But how, what, how does that maybe impact you now? Or do, do you see yourself, uh, working to live and, or do you live to work? Do you, well, how, I mean, I, I don't know if, if that's an, even an answerable question. Oh, yes. It's very answerable and it's very important to me. Um, so two things, though. I have an insane amount of privilege in that I love what I do a lot. And I've, um, I have kind of, in the weirdest ways, turned what I love into a job and like keep doing it. I'm like, oh, how can I like monetize this thing? And so um, I just like I'm privileged in that. Not everybody can be like, I love quarters, like and collecting <laughs> quarters. I don't know, like or whatever. Yeah, that's not a good example. But like, baking is what I love. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's so interesting, and it like definitely drives me. Um, so that's uh, that's easy there. But. Um, a big reason why I left ADARM and also I think a part of like what was going on at Perk was um, restaurants are very much uh, for like certain levels of, of like employment there. Like you are just on a grind um, and there's an expectation that you should, you know, work 60 hours a week, work 70 hours a week. And um with eight arm, like, I just was like, I was not even realizing like what day it was. I just was like constantly on this like rotation. And it was like, I went to Paris and I was like, there's like more to life than this. Like, yes, I want to be successful at this, but this, this isn't really like the only way to do it. Um, I do think that, uh, and I don't know what it is, you know, you know how I said, like, um, in France, it does really feel like people live for the day and like live mm. for the moment a little bit more. And I think that is the result of like, I think, sorry, I'm about to get like very historical, but like World War Go II, like World War II, everyone was like, oh my God, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Like we enjoy it. And I think the result of the, the Great Depression and like the way our grandparents like progressed. Um, so like Great Depression my my grandparents like saved everything they like hoarded everything they like would buy as much as they could and then save it or preserve it and then the 80s and 90s and like my parents they're all about convenience mm. um still a little bit of like um like saving mentality but then the 80s was like i think a crazy economic boom and so like convenience and more like opulence and like all this stuff and um, that generation was like all about like, okay, keep working, like, you know, look at this prosperity we have now, like, 
work, work, work. And then my generation was taught to kind of like keep working. Yeah, the 80s and 90s was all about like convenience foods and like um, because people were like, there's like an economic boom. And so there's a lot more money to spend like somebody else do it, whether it's your microwave or help or whatever it may be. And then my generation, I think we're just confused. We don't know what to believe. Um, and then I feel like your generation is, you guys are really like exploring like what it means to live a full life. Um, and like, cause I notice a lot of people that I train that are, you know, five, six, seven years younger than me. They're like, no, I don't really care about like, um, you know, living to work. I just like want to know this thing and I want to like enjoy this thing. And I want to like, um, know about it, but I don't want to be obsessed. Like my life is well-rounded and, um, I don't know. I find it, I think that's a really fascinating question. And that like hits to the psychology of, of like life. Um, so I'm very much, uh, I would much rather, uh, have a business that is manageable and, um, like, I'm not interested in becoming like the next Sarah Lee or the next, like, I don't care. Like, I love what I do. I want to support myself and my family in whatever way I can. Like, sure, I want to be able to pay my bills, but like, I'm, I don't care about like getting rich or like, like that's not what I'm about. Um, mm -hmm. but, and like, I do love what I do. So I do love working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Episode 17 with Derek Sabori. Cosm has a transparent business model. And I'm, we kind of like touched on that already. I, I actually have never seen it. And um, uh, David told me, told me about, about that. And I thought it was so cool. Um, how did that come about that you want Cosm to have a transparent business model? Well, it was really kind of piecing all the, all the best practices of all the things that are going on out there. So definitely we weren't the first, you know, like Everlane for a while was talking about their, all of their factory. They would tell you all the factory. And I think they did costs as well, kind of at a higher level. And there were some brands so, um, that were doing supply, um, um, transparent supply chains and telling you where everything was made. So we wanted to kind of piece all that together and say, hey, here's where every component is made. Here's who makes it, what it's made out of, what certifications we have, what fibers we've chosen, why they're better and then tell you how much it costs because mm. products aren't cheaper. They're made in small batches in downtown Los Angeles of sustainable fibers that we start with, you know, the, often the yarns with. So we had to explain that and we thought what better way to try to show people that we weren't trying to, I guess in a way justify it, we were trying to justify our costs, but also say, hey, we're not just charging you $84 for these shorts because we think we can, it's because that's kind of what we need to do to survive, to keep this business alive. Mm. Um, and it goes back to that idea of sustainable, you know, manufacturing isn't the cheaper way. So, and, and that has also, that transparency has become an industry expectation now. So there's a, um, a report that you can, there's a movement called the fashion revolution movement. And you maybe have seen it, you maybe have seen signs. It comes out every April. Mm -hmm. It was um, in honor of, and was built after the Rana Plaza disaster when the factory in Bangladesh collapsed. Um, and that was a big thing because, you know, more than 1,100 people died and the brands that were in there, nobody wanted to take accountability and say, you know what, we did know that. And that was a problem. Everybody just said, whoa, 
that's not our fault. We didn't say we wanted to be in that factory. So then the building owner, nobody wanted to take accountability for it. And the brands were saying, oh, we, we sourced through an agent and we didn't know where they were placing that. Mm. That was the old way. The old way was kind of like this black box, right? We just kind of like I've said before, we just didn't ask any questions. And immediately the public pressure was like, you know what? No, 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 that's not okay. That's not, that is no longer acceptable. Every brand, a brand of your size should know exactly where your products are being made and in what kind of conditions they're being made in. Nobody should die for fashion, right? So they started this movement to say, hey, ask your favorite brand who made your clothes. You know, um, what, where were those people located? How were they living? What are they paid? What kind of conditions are they working in? And then brands on the flip side were saying, hey, um, here, is, here are our people and we made your clothes. So that, and now they do an assessment, it's called the Fashion Tra Revolution Transparency Index. Mm -hmm. And that is this great tool where they go through and assess the industry every year and go through and, to, and find out from the biggest brands who is being transparent about how their products are made, where they're being made, what kind of code of conduct they have in place, what kind of rules, expectations, et cetera. So it definitely is evolving and becoming a standard H&M. You go shopping on H&M and they have, their, they have also now their open source, their transparency as well. They tell you wow. the factory, where it's located, as much Nike, Adidas, Levi's, so many different companies now. It's becoming more and more of a standard, whereas, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, unheard of. Nobody was, you know, that was our proprietary information. Hmm. So when we started Cosm, it felt a little bit disruptive, but it definitely is becoming the norm now to um, yeah. the expectations down to tell that information. It's, it's kind it's reassuring. I guess, I guess it's like a reassuring way to be informed and it's honest. It's such an honest way to do business, I think. Yeah. And that's, I, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, thanks for that. Cause I think that's the hope, right? It's like, we're not perfect. We're not, it's not going to be, and it's like, Hey, and it might be too much for you. I get it. It's okay. But at least, at least it's all out there and it makes yeah. us feel good. It makes me feel good to go. We're doing what we can and we're doing our part and we're not trying to be anything that we're not. And I'm not going to try to hide anything from anybody. And it's not always going to be, you know, absolutely. There's going to be things that we always have to work on, but at least you will always know. And we will just lay it out all on the table. Yeah which is like kind of nice because it's like, okay, there's an open conscious, there's, 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 you know, if you like it, it's like the farmer's market, you know, it's like, yeah. you get to see it all here. When, when you talked about how, you know, there's pressure from the leadership and the people want to do it and everybody wants to do it. You talked in your TED talk, you said, you talked about the perfect cheese sandwich. Yeah, the grilled Did, cheese. Grilled cheese. Did you watch uh, Chef? Uh, no, Chef. Uh, the movie, I think it's called Ch uh, Chef. Yeah, I watched it. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's about the food truck. And he's this. Yeah. And, well, it depends. It was kind of old. Maybe I saw one a while back. And yeah. And it's, a, it's about a food truck and he's a chef. And then this critic comes in and he's like, ah, I need a food truck. And then he um, talked about this cheese sandwich. And, and a while ago, I listened to a TED talk and it's just like connected. And I was like, this is going to be <laughs> such a good metaphor for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that with that one, that analogy of, of just like, to me, because one, if I'm going to work, if we're going to work on a sustainability program, it has to come from the top. Leadership mm -hmm. has to want it, enforce it, give it resources, give it energy, be part of their new platform. They're talking, their, their, their role as a leader has to now include this language. 
Um, how are we going to perform this quarter? How are our sales? You know, what's our margin? What's profitability? What are our plans? What are we doing for sustainability has to come from the top. And then it has to also come from the end. So that's the heat coming down, right? But also your employees, and usually often it's the employees that are often first, they're starting to get hungry and they want it and they're asking questions and they're sometimes the rogue employees will kind of work their way to me and start saying, hey, I'd really like some help at our, at our, at our company, but we're not sure where to start. I'm going to make some introductions to you. So that's the heat from the bottom, mm. right? But even like in the Panini press, once all that heat gets in there, but also they need to put heat out to the side to all of their suppliers and all of their stakeholders. And everybody needs to be on this same um, wavelength, this same heat energy to really melt that cheese. Cause if it's only the employees or it's only the leader, you're going to have a half, you know, baked sandwich and it's yeah. the worst, you know? So yeah. everybody's going to be putting their, giving it some love. <laughs> No, I, I really, I really uh, like that presentation. Also, the um, kind of like the domino effect you were talking about. Um, and I mean, nowadays, looking forward, everything going on, where do you see, I think, maybe like sustainability? I mean, right now, you said everyone's pressuring businesses to be more sustainable and get the, get the certifications and everything. But the B Corp, certification that Cosm also has. Um, do you think it should be a requirement for all apparel businesses? Oh man, I would love it. I think it should be a, well, I mean, you know, it gets tough to say, I mean, yeah, it makes great sense. Like I think, but it's not just apparel, it's all businesses. Anybody who is making anything and doing anything, a B Corp assessment has you go in and answer questions about how do you treat your workers? What kind of diversity do you have? What are you doing for the community? Where are you sourcing your goods? Do you even know what's in your goods? Do you know what impacts mm -hmm. those goods have while they're being made? So it, ans it, 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 it answers or asks you questions that test your knowledge of how, how much you know about you know, the good stuff and the bad stuff about you, the way your goods are made and what type of impacts it is having on your employees, your customers, and your your um, and the community, you know, your mm -hmm. all of your stakeholders. So I love that approach, and I think business plays such a powerful role in driving forward sustainability. Um, I think business, obviously, business products and brands play a huge part in most all of our lives, and we are so influenced by them. So if we can get them to do, and and for you, somebody who you know, younger people, students who don't have a lot of disposable income. Mm. You're going, hey, I care, but I can't spend $90 on a pair of shorts. That doesn't make sense for me. You know, I, I would rather just go, can I just go here and get my $14 shorts? So it's the responsibility of the business. And I think it's the only way we would drive things forward. But I don't think you can make a company be good. We have to, it's like you can't make somebody be a good person. Mm. We can influence them and we can continuously be good examples and try, you know, but I look at that very much in the way of like, there are just going to be some people in the world who are tougher to deal with and who aren't nice, you know, and a and very current help. issue, right? <laughs> uh, and I think businesses are the same because you're going to have some businesses. You're like, Hey, I will voluntarily do that. Uh -huh. I will take on that burden, take on those costs, do that assessment. It's harder and slower to do sustainable business. It just mm -hmm. is the easier, cheaper way is to just don't ask questions. Don't ask anything is I just look through the directory, 
How much is that? Feels good. No problem. Let's take it. Cheapest price, highest margin. Wow. So sustainable brands are against that. How do we compete mm -hmm. with that? Somebody like me is like, hmm, where did that come from? What is it made out of? It's going to take me, you know, months to make a decision. Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Ask more questions. Ask more questions. The other person is just like, it doesn't even matter because, you know, it's, I can get it so quick. I can get it tomorrow and I can make it in this country or that. Yeah. It's just apples and oranges, you know? Yeah. So I would love to see if, Yes, if there was even some phasing in of making something like a B Corp be a requirement at some point or elements of it for sure. But mm. great question. I don't know if I've, anybody's ever asked me if it should be a requirement, but I guess, yeah, that would be my, <laughs> that'd be my hope. Episode 18 with Diana Elise. Talk, talking talking about this i want i wanted to i wanted to uh kind of ask why like i if like the photographers you talk about do you have to be a specific type of person to because you're also like in the background right you're in the background or you're the behind the scenes like i guess person do you ever want to be on the band like want to be in the light like, like be be a band or be in the band you mean yeah like do you ever have a moment where you're like yeah why, why do you want to be the behind the the scenes person um so i did have that moment when i was doing my band stuff and from like previous from yeah old, older the older band yeah, yeah yeah and every now and then like i'll think about like hmm, maybe i should like make music again or whatever but it's kind of like what they say when you turn your hobby into a career, it becomes like a little, I don't know, like exhausting, I guess. And with music, like that was like my outlet. Like if I was going through something or something was like on my mind, I would like write a song about it. And um, it just like came to me. And then once my band started getting to the point where we were like, okay, we need to put out songs like regularly and we need to think about like the business side of things. Cause like, it's not just about the music when you want to be like a famous artist. Like it's about like, it's, you turn it into a business too. And then it becomes kind of like exhausting. And it's like, I just got involved in this because like I enjoy making music. I wasn't trying to like think about, you know, how can I, get what what kind of song do I need to make in order to get people to like us more and like how can I do this at shows to get people to want to come talk to us and like buy our merch and like follow us on social media it became like a lot and it kind of and then also too trying to like network with people to get higher up um started getting a little shady we started running into some shady people and stuff and like no. it just, yeah it just started getting like i don't want to say negative but like just like distasteful and like after that i was like okay i don't know if i want to do music as like a career maybe i just want to have it as my hobby as my side thing and just worry about that and so doing the photos and videos for artists now and just yeah, being that behind the scenes person it's kind of nice because it's like I'm still a part of the music industry and the scene and I still get to be a part of like all the similar things that they are I just don't have to do like 
I don't want to say as much work, but the same kind of work that they do. I don't have to stress mm-hmm. about those kind of things. Like my only stress is like, okay, I have to like go into my program, drop all these files and then put it over to my hard drive. Like things like that don't stress me out. And it's like working on photos and videos for like hours at a time. Like I can deal with that and I enjoy it when it was like, thinking about my band members because like being in a band is like being in a relationship with like a bunch of other people <laughs> so it's like when I have to think about what they want and what they like and then we have to construct songs together and then think about like producing and recording and it was just like those are like little I guess like tasks that I didn't really enjoy that much I just enjoyed like playing and performing and that was pretty much it uh-huh yeah. I was more focused on being at the top than I was about the journey for the music thing. Uh-huh. With this, I'm like, I'm into the journey. I'm into watching myself grow as like a photographer and a filmmaker and stuff like that. Do you ever do you always want to freelance maybe? Because that's essentially what you're doing right now, right? Yeah. So is is there ever like an aspect where you're like, okay, I want to work? for someone or do you did this pandemic kind of say okay this it may be challenging to be a freelancer but i want to continue doing this or is do you ever have doubts regarding working in freelance um no i want to own like i want to be my own business like i'm going to school like kind of going back to the last question i'm going to school and taking what i'm learning from school to help me grow as a creative person and kind of like develop my own business so i'm like going to school and learning what i can with like mm-hmm. media and social media and everything and then applying that now And then the goal is to hopefully, like, when I graduate, like, be somewhere in my freelance career to where I might not even have to, like, work for somebody. Like, I Mm. am already making enough money solo that I can just continue doing this as, like, a full-time thing. And so, um, but definitely the pandemic kind of made me switch gears with the concert photography thing. Like, I still would love to do and I still want to do it. But I think before the pandemic, that was like my ultimate goal. I was like, I want to be touring all the time. And I want to like, you know, be on the road and hanging out with bands and doing the band life thing. But um, it was funny because I took this one journalism class and my teacher made us like interview um, people that had jobs that we wanted to Mm -hmm. have. And I was going to interview this concert photographer guy. And she was like, um one of the questions that you should ask him is like if is that a sustainable career like Mm. what happens when you're done touring like are you what are you how are you making money how are you like affording to pay your bills and stuff and I was like "Ooh, like you really got me (laughs) like that's a good question yeah So, so then once COVID came all of the touring photographers and content creators that I like look up to were like screwed because all their tours got canceled and like they didn't really know what they were going to do or what the next step was. So some of them like started podcasts and some of them like went back to shooting weddings. Like that's what they were doing before shows. And then I was just like, wow, like obviously this whole situation is like very 
out of this world in a sense like nobody's ever experienced what we're experiencing right now so like nobody would have expected that Mm. but at the same time it's like you know anything can happen so it's like the career that I want to be in and that I want to choose it should be something that like if a COVID situation happened or if we needed to like I don't know like stop what we were doing that I would still be able to like make money somehow Mm. so um yeah, the pandemic has definitely like shifted that part of my mental and had me thinking about like other ways to be a creative person and make money and stuff like that. But I want to be my own boss. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, um, I was going to say like working um, like jobs and stuff and having a boss and like having to do what people want you to do so that you can get your paycheck at the end of the week. I was just like, no, this is so lame. Like I want to make my own money and I want to like my own flexibility and like, I don't want to have to like request days off. Like I want to just be like, I'm going to go out of town and I'll do my stuff on the road, like that kind of thing. So episode 14, Alison Segraves. You can learn a lot about, um, I mean, that is something where I think humans should look at, for example, bees, how well they work together. We're not going um, well against the bees. Oh, yes. Yeah, so um, I, I feel I, I'm really interested in um, just sort of like, what can, we, what can we learn from nature? You know, what can we learn about how a colony, um, how a colony operates and how they have... Um, a uh everything they do is for the good of the colony and then there's this concept of um there's a word i don't know if um which what language this word is from i mean i know there's a french word be but the word that i'm speaking of in this case is called b-i-e-n is that is there a german version of that b-i-e-n bien so it's like it's in every language um but I, so I was reading in one of my B books that the the word BN, so I don't know how you say it in the context of whatever language uh-huh. it's it's from for this particular definition. Um, but but the definition as I read it, but I've yet to validate that this is actually a thing, um, refers to the the ecosystem in which the bee colony lives. So which I think this is a really interesting interesting idea, and I'm trying to. F- understand how to pronounce this word and like which language like is is this word does this word have this meaning so the concept is that it's the broader ecosystem in which the colony lives um so for example you can't have a thriving colony if the bees have nothing to um you know get pollinate or get nectar from or um the quality of their food sources, uh, the, you know, the the um, the quality of the their hive, and and one of the things that's a threat to bees is these varroa mites. So that's that's one of the reasons for bee loss. But anyway, this whole concept of BN or however it's pronounced um, is the ecosystem that supports the life of the colony, and so. I, this is a topic I'm interested in, in general, in terms of like how that relates to like humans and, 
in our whole system? Like what, what kind of ecosystem do we need to have where um, in the sort of the broadest sense, whether it's like, mm. uh, like ecosystem of, of, of the planet or an ecosystem of how we act with each other, because clearly, you know, we're at one of the most, um, you know, challenging times, certainly in, in my lifetime, as far as, uh, uh, you know, just people, uh, you know, so much um, people not getting along mm. and so much divisiveness and, and negativity. And so I feel like our BN is really uh, uh, not healthy. Yeah. And um, so I, I'm interested in just that idea of how do we how do we have a healthier uh ecosystem in every sort of context mm. um uh you know to uh, as a society as a as a um you know in terms of how we take care of ourselves our planet you know our neighborhoods our communities um so anyway, yeah. it, I, I, the parallels to beekeeping, to me, beekeeping is, it's really a metaphor for um, the, the health of colonies, however you define a colony, mm. whether it's the human colony, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's your country, whether it's your, whether it's people, whether it's, you know, whatever. I, I, I think it's really interesting. What do you think is important right now for us to, uh, really drill down on or what what should we take as mo most important during right now with the pandemic jobs is difficult but it surely isn't the most difficult time that that will come in years to in the following years so i'm not sure if if there's something you can speak to yes i, I think um you know there's this whole school of follow your passion um and i i i think there is truth to the fact that when you do things you love it doesn't seem like work but i think also that that is you know typical um you know kind of graduation advice and i think it puts a lot of pressure on people it's like well what if i don't have a passion mm -hmm. i mean like i didn't have a passion when i graduated and so then people sit around and think, well, uh, I need to find a job in my passion and I don't know what my passion is. And, and so I, I think sometimes you just need to try some things. Um, so I, I would just kind of advise people to, you know, think of things that like are kind of interesting to you, like make a list of things you like to do when you were a kid that whatever to just give you some sense of what interests you. But, um, but just kind of dive in and you know try some things take a job you know it's not you're not signing your life away get some experience and you you learn that you're either doing something that that oh this could be interesting if i learn more and and delve deeper or you know what i this is really probably something i don't want to do and so then you learn that mm. um so i i think people should um uh i think just getting some solid experience and um you know the the work world is going to change significantly i think post covid uh, much more flexible a lot more remote work um and i think um being adaptable and flexible and um being able to uh 
you know, I, I would have a side hustle. I would have, um, I would have multiple, I would look to find multiple income streams because I think the idea of stability will be uh, less, uh, less so in the future. Um, and so I think being able to not have all your eggs in one basket, um, learn different skills, be ready to, you know, make a change and be able to anticipate when you need to make a change. Um, but, uh, you know, I would just say um, be constantly learning mm. um, and have, have a, a mindset focused on growing and learning. And um, that's, uh, it will lead you down paths that you can't predict. I mean, I think it's, you can't, you can't really predict where things will go. I, I couldn't have predicted most things in my life. And um, predicting is limiting mm. um, because you can only predict what you know. Um, and you can't predict what hasn't come yet. So uh, I would just say, be be open and be humble, and um, and, and and you know, be willing to work hard and 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 try things, and don't think you have to start out in, with your dream job. Take that pressure off yourself. Lastly, episode sixteen with Will Culbertson. <laughs> it's surprising how many germans i met on the at yeah really for some reason yeah for all like out of all the the foreigners a lot of them i found i found out to be german yeah it was uh, kind of cool yeah did you have everything i mean you're a planner from what you told me but did you have your like your pro your equipment how does that work with there's probably so much um again planning involved in how to feed yourself the type of equipment do you travel light because you probably hike eight miles 10 miles a day yeah so um how it kind of worked for me i had a leg up on a lot of people because i did have this background in boy scouts uh-huh. so i kind of knew you know i already knew how to like filter your water and uh kind of what foods to bring but yeah it was uh definitely a wake-up call uh starting you know being so active in high school doing basically nothing for four years in college and then like trying to act like you know i'm this 17 year old kid this like lanky cross-country runner yeah who can like hike 15 miles a day so uh -huh. I, I um i had all the gear pretty much dialed in um i had i actually brought too much food if you can believe that Oh, but you, you, yeah, you don't really start with the hiker hunger until like, you know, you've been out there for a couple of weeks. Uh -huh. But uh, I, I started off uh, doing about 10 miles a day and then I got uh, down off of Blood Mountain um, mm -hmm. and that that day I still have it seared in my head because every step was like just pure agony I, I don't know what was going on with my knees but every time I would bend them it would be like someone was putting a fork in them ah. and like kind of twisting it a little bit yeah it that's was not very a welcoming bad. start <laughs> no so I mean this was like hiking AT was a dream of mine ever since I ran into um I wish I could remember her trail name but uh this 
lady was hiking while we were camping at uh, Chestnut Ridge in Burke's Garden. And she, uh, she was like, you know, kind of smelled real bad and looked like she'd been out there, like briars had kind of been cutting on her. Yeah. And she just looked like, like worn down, but like really happy. And mm. I, we were just asking her all these questions. Like if you could imagine like 13 year old kids, just like, what, what do you do for food? And like, whoa, what about bears? And blah. And I, I think I, I was the one who asked, well, aren't you scared? Yeah. And she just kind of like, you know, kind of like a, it was a scene from an old cowboy Western where she just kind of put her head down, <laughs> like cocked it to the side and was like, scared of what you know wow so yes and ever since then i was like man this is something i have to do so just imagine like three days in i'm coming down off blood mountain i can't move and i get to uh uh it's this um famous uh outfitter store like right along the at it it's claimed to fame is that it, it's the only uh covered section of the at okay because they ha they have this little uh walkway you go through near their store that's like has a uh, roof over it yeah that's, that's the only part of the at that has a roof over it that's pretty <laughs> well that's like uh how, how many me i i how many meters would that be it's just like it's probably not even a lot right yeah i mean i don't even know how much a meter is to, to be honest but um yeah it's probably like two i don't know <laughs> That, That's like six not feet? Yeah, I, 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 I think I, I need to. I'm bad at like I always think in meters, and then I confuse myself and the person I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, America needs to get with the times. Come on, let's go to meters. Let's do it. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming down Blood Mountain. I get there. There's a, there's a hostel there, and I'm like, well, maybe I just need to rest a day. Mm -hmm. So I stay there. Next day. Uh, I'm like, yeah, don't worry. I'll get there tomorrow, you know, because you I've, at this point I've already made some friends and the AT is a very social trail. So it's like, you want to stick together and, right, you know, kind of see who makes it. But uh, next day came and I still couldn't really walk. So I was like, wow, this is something serious. So I, I hitch a ride down to Helen, Georgia, mm -hmm. and I stay there for about three or four days, I think. And the whole time I'm just sitting in this hotel room, I'm like, this is it. This I'm done. I, this was my shot. And, you know, this is all I could do. And yeah. um, so I go defeated to this bar. Uh, and is it I'm a like, German bar? It is. It, the whole <laughs> town's a German town, actually. It's like a themed town. No lie. It's a, it's a funny little place. I mean, they got good barbecue if you ever want to visit. But yeah. Um, so I go there and I'm like, just give me the tallest of whatever you have. And the, I get to talking to the bartender. I'm the only one there. And he's like, yeah, I, there's like, I get so many people down here that are like AT hikers. And basically he was like, this is the town where that dream goes to die. And I'm like, in Helen, Georgia. Yeah. Cause people go down there and then a lot of people are on the AT to like, smoke and drink and just like have fun and you know just be out there for like spring break or whatever which is fine I mean you know hike your own hike but for me it was more of like this this journey I had to take and you know to prove to myself 
that I can do, do something and that I, you know, can, can accomplish my dreams. Mm -hmm. And to hear that, I was like, holy cow, I'm getting the H out of Dodge. So like that night I packed everything up and I was like, if I can only hike one mile a day, that's what I'm going to spend my day doing. Mm. So I went back on the trail and I, I think I did like three or four that day. The next day was pretty much the same, maybe like four or five. But um, every day or two, I would add another mile. And I just kept doing that until I think it was Klingman's Dome uh, in the Smokies, which is the highest point on the AT. And I was like, after I got there, I was like, I can do this. This yeah. is, this, I, you know, it was maybe like 200 or so miles in, maybe a little more, a little less. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just had this like affirmation, uh, mainly because there were so many, that was the first day the road was open. So there was a lot of people driving up to Cleveland's Dome. Right. And you could just kind of like hear them like pointing, be like, oh, that's a through hiker, you know, like, oh, look at that guy. And then you hear some people like, what smells? Oh, what, what smells? <laughs> the, the following question is, what smells? <laughs> yeah. That must be him. That's definitely me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, that was something like when I heard them say like, oh, that's a through hiker. I was like, yeah, you're daggone right. I'm a, I'm a hike this whole thing. I'm a through hiker. Yeah. That's it. That was 2020. All the guests I've interviewed. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe. Uh, tell your friends. Follow us on Instagram as they say pod. Um, I always post whenever I have a new episode coming out. Or you can also click the notification button on wherever podcast platform you listen to. As I say, um, I'm super grateful if you made all the way to the end and you're listening to this uh, thank you very much i'm looking forward to 2021 new guests and um, new lessons i will learn and conversations i'll share on this make sure you stay tuned see you next year be well auf wiedersehen (laughs) 